According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6 this morning. Proverbs chapter 6. We were there last week too. And maybe the week before. Proverbs chapter 6. For some of us, this may be our first look at Proverbs chapter 6. Others have been here at least twice, maybe three times. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Any carnality is going to remove the fruitfulness of this study. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you are carnal, you cannot assimilate the Word of God. And... uh, We obviously don't want to sit here under those circumstances. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask Him to teach us His Word this morning. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank You for the book of Proverbs. We thank You for the wisdom that it provides, spiritual wisdom, temporal wisdom, wisdom and in skill and decision making father i pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding this morning as we observe some of the different facets of wisdom including financial wisdom father how do we make sound business decisions father uh, thank you that your word encompasses every aspect of our life that your word provides all things necessary for life and godliness and i thank you father uh, for all these things in jesus christ's name amen all right Proverbs chapter 6, however many lessons this has been, we uh, are wrapping up verses 1 through 5 that details the uh, prohibition against financial entanglements, that is, not becoming surety for a neighbor, not giving a pledge for a stranger. And the parallel between the neighbor and the stranger is interesting because it's not normal for the Bible to take a neighbor and parallel him with a stranger. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to serve our neighbors. Um, but we should not become entangled in their poor business decisions. This is something that we have to draw the line and say, wait a minute, I love you neighbor, but I am not becoming financially entangled with this because my obligations are to my family, to my clan, to my tribe, all right, not to your scheme, this, this whatever this is, this you know, it doesn't have to be a get-rich-quick type scheme or whatever. Maybe it's very sound. Maybe there's nothing wrong with it. But if there's nothing wrong with it, why does he need you to be his surety? If there's nothing, if it's not shady, then why is his family, his clan, and his tribe not supportive of it? You understand? And so the whole reason why you go to a neighbor to get them involved in non-neighborly things is uh, is a problem, and that grabs our attention. You know, there are things that God God's word keeps within. The family, God's word keeps within the marriage, for example. I mean, not to be crude or, or, or ludicrous or whatever, but think about it. That's what there's, you know, your marital relations are marital relations. They're within a marriage. You, you keep things where they belong. You don't expand them out there. They don't belong to your neighbor. They belong to you. Same thing with your finances. The, the admonition here in these verses is not to become financially snared in this way, because if you are involved, if you have given a pledge, now you're on the hook, and you don't want to be on the hook. In fact, the imperatives uh, tell you, no matter how embarrassing it is, get off the hook and get off the hook now. And that's significant, because you've given your word, you've said, I will. And God says, you've got to get out of that, I will. The God of all truth says, don't even enter into those obligations. All right. And so that's what we deal with in these first five verses. So in chapter 6, this is the first point of study, and there's uh, five subpoints A, B, C, D, E, and we're in the midst of E right now, and then we'll move on to look at main point 2, which is the uh, laziness of verses 6 through 11. So point 1, in chapter 6, David's parental wisdom to Solomon turns to financial matters. The first admonition is a warning against the financial entanglements of others. This is the first. The second admonition is against the uh, the sluggard. Look to the ant, uh, O sluggard. And we'll deal with that here shortly. All right. 
the idea of becoming surety, the idea of clapping hands or um, being committed. As we see here, given a pledge, when you shake on a deal, it's finalized, as we understand it. Talked about the vocabulary there. Showed the places where it's acceptable, the places where it's not acceptable. Uh, It was very admirable for Judah to become pledge on behalf of Benjamin. And that's the positive illustration. As a matter of family business, we must uh, take care of our family. We, We are already financially entangled to begin with. Under point C, the dynamic between friends and brothers is often compared and contrasted, and often it's very favorable. Oftentimes there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, as we understand it. And, and uh, there's patterns there where uh, it's a, on a very positive basis. Neither friends nor brothers are ever parallel to strangers until you get to a concept like right here. This is the exception to the rule. Neither group is connected to strangers, except in the matter of surety. If, uh, if your neighbor is trying to get you sucked into this business arrangement, if he wants you to be his surety, then he's putting himself on a stranger footing instead of the neighbor footing where he belongs. And that's, uh, that's a problem. We've got to have our eyes open to that and stop and say, wait a minute, I cannot be a partaker in this. Surety may not be given for a friend. That's clear here in Proverbs 6.1. But it may be given for a brother, as we've seen in the pattern with uh, Judah and Benjamin in Genesis 43 and Genesis 44. Indeed, redemption is the obligation of kinsmen in Ruth chapter 4. Not just becoming surety, but after the fact, if something has gone belly up, if something has been sold off, if something's just been flat out lost, as in the case of the property there with Elimelech and, and uh, his sons and, and so forth, redeeming uh, Naomi and redeeming Ruth required uh, a significant financial outlay. And uh, the, the kinsman that was closer to Boaz was not willing to do it. He was in defiance of his own family obligations, you understand. And so I'm, I'm hoping this is clear. I, I don't mind repeating myself or, or stressing it again from week to week, only because um, much of what we deal with in the ancient world is kind of alien to us today. It's a little bit lost. Um, we don't have quite the same linkage uh, between family and business. Uh, we do in a limited extent. Obviously, you want to help your kids out or you got to be honorable to your parents. And there's there are things even in the modern world that that relate but uh, we don't we don't contract our, our daughters uh, for uh, a business link with another clan or with another family, as it were. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, marriage was a business transaction between parents, and uh, the children who were honoring to their parents learned how to love one another in the uh, in the marriage, and that just blows the mind of too many modern American sensibilities that are out there. But in any event. I worked with a man, by the way, um, from Nigeria. He worked for the sheriff's department, and um, he met his wife on their wedding day, and it was arranged by his parents. It was and her parents, and and she flew to London. He was living in London at the time, originally from Nigeria, and the the, the families and the clans in in Africa arranged all this, and she flew to London, got off the plane, they met, and and that evening they were married. And, uh, you know, 20, whatever, how many years later it was, and four kids, and they, they learned to love each other in the meantime is the uh, interesting aspect of that. Well, <laughs> don't get me going. All right. The reason why this is so serious, because we're talking about being ensnared by your words. Verse 2 here of Proverbs 6, 2. If you have been snared with the words of your mouth. If you have been caught with the words of your mouth. And here the parallelism is, is quite striking. Um, it's the words of your mouth at both times that have snared you and caught you. And uh, this is uh, the, the emphasis where it's basically saying the same thing twice, but it repeats it for emphasis, and we understand that. But the words, what you say, binds you. Words are binding because this is what God has, uh, this is the nature of God's character, the nature of God's essence, and the nature of us in the image of God. The fact that He has blessed us with the capacity for speech. All right? This is part of, of what it means to be in the image of God. And if we say something, we're held accountable as a reflection of God 
who when he says something, he's accountable. He is accountable to himself. He cannot lie. When he says an I will statement, he brings it about to defend his own integrity, to defend his own character. Remember, God's word is absolute truth. Why would our word be a lie? We are children of our father, not children of the, of the liar. All right? And we understand that. The contrast comes, I think, best in John chapter 8, where you have your father the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning, and, and the principles that come there. But you'll notice, words are ensnaring. We're accountable for our words. We are absolutely accountable for our words. We will give an account for every careless word. To give oneself in pledge is to utter an I will statement. This is why when it talks about surety and clapping the hands in verse 1, it then moves to the verbal statement in verse 2, that what you're doing when you become a, a surety for your neighbor is you are declaring, I will. I will. I will back up whatever he falls short on. I will cover his debts. I will make good on his obligations, okay? And on a, on a practical basis in, in secular financing and in terms of earthly funds, um, you're a fool to be involved in the things that God has commanded you to not be involved in. It is an unnecessary yoke, and that's what we're warned about even in, in uh, Corinthians, to not be unequally yoked. What, what fellowship is there with light and darkness, with Christ and Belial? With, you know, if, if that's not the realm that should be bound together, don't bind it together. Um, in any event, Matthew uh, 5, verses 33 through 37, I think goes well with the Proverbs 6, 2, with respect to vows, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Uh, the idea of a vow is uh, not necessary, and it's not even appropriate as far as you and I are concerned. God will sometimes take a vow, and that, that just uh, reinforces how powerful it is when the God who cannot lie takes a vow. You and I are very capable of telling lies, <laughs> so why, uh, what, what function does the vow serve? What function, when we say, does it make it any more serious? If I, if I raise my hand and say, I promise, you know, does that mean, what does that mean? I shouldn't be lying anyway, even if I don't raise my hand or put my hand on a Bible or, or say, so help me God, Right? or as God is my witness, or I swear on my mother's grave, or all these dumb expressions that we use from time to time. Why do we add verbiage to our expression to somehow increase the veracity of that expression? It should be true anyway, because we are children of truth. We walk in the truth. We're saved by the God of truth. The spirit of truth dwells within us. In any event, Matthew 5, 33 through 37 is the application here. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, or for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. All right? More work that could be done on that, but if you want, we've got the Life of Christ series on the website. It's not even a church-age passage, obviously. It's a Sermon on the Mount passage for the Millennial Kingdom. But it's repeated, James 5, 12. There's a church-age passage. No doubt about that. James 5, 12. Above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, with any other oath, See, and what do you do with an oath anyway? What is an oath? It's an abjuration. This is when you are calling a deity to witness. This is where you are inviting divine judgment upon your head. Well, guess what? Whether you invite it or not, divine judgment will be on your head because you're a child of truth and the God of truth will hold you to it. That's why he's saying don't get in these entanglements. So uh, your yes is to be yes, your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. To give oneself in pledge, this is subpoint one, to give oneself in pledge is to utter an I will statement, and we are accountable for every careless word. Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. We obviously want no part of that. And so the urgency of this, if you've done this, then Proverbs 6, 3 says, do this then, my son. So if you've done this, you must now do this. 
Okay? Bad decision in the past is now leading to uh, unpleasant options, embarrassing options, not just humbling options, but crushingly stamp, you know, being stomped options. Oh, before I move on to that, though. Remember, I am takes his I will statements absolutely and eternally. He holds us to what we say we're going to do. All right, point E. Financial self-enslavement requires self-deliverance. Financial self-enslavement requires self-deliverance. And I think this is uh, a significant principle that we can glean out of the book of Proverbs, particularly for a culture that's saturated with debt left and right and up and down and everything else. Okay, And what happens when you voluntarily submit to a uh, circumstance of this nature? Well, did God put you there or did you put yourself there? And uh, if, uh, if it was foolishly done in terms, I mean, we're not talking about... Um, at some point we ought to maybe just go into a larger realm of um, financing and debt and, and the structuring of, of uh, economics on a biblical basis, things of that nature. We get a little bit of an introduction to it here in any event. Um, you put yourself here where you don't belong. You put yourself here where God said, don't get into this. Okay. Now, there may be other things that, you, that you're on the hook for in, sense, in the sense of family, in the sense of redeeming a lost property, in the sense of biblically um, being honorable in your business dealings. And that, that's wisdom, that's Proverbs, there's, there's applications there, but not in this case. In this case, you self-enslaved yourself, and now he commands you to self-rescue. He commands you to deliver yourself. And boy, that gets our attention because, you know, we, we, we're accustomed to the fact that we, we can't save ourselves, that, you know, on a soteriological basis with sozo and some other terminology, that, hey, I'm, I'm in the slave market of sin. I can't, slave my, I can't save myself. I need him to save me. I need him to redeem me because I'm not able, I'm not willing, and, and he has to be my kinsman redeemer. All right? And so, you know... You spend uh, 20 years preaching uh, how you can't save yourself, and then you get to a passage like this that says save yourself. (laughs) So you go, hmm, that's an interesting uh, application, isn't it? Do this then, my son, and rescue, deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself, and this is not the humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time application. This is uh, embarrass yourself, stomp on yourself, crush yourself, importune your neighbor. That is beg and plead and beg and plead and beg and plead and, and don't quit begging until he finally gets sick and tired of you. Okay, Importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. That's how serious it is. Don't even go to bed tonight. Don't go to bed tonight until this is taken care of. So deliver yourself. The verb is not sal, N-A-T-S-A-L, with 213 uses. So we're going to spend the next 74 weeks. <laughs> no, actually, we're not. Um, but it's worth uh, examining, at least in the cases that, that are comparable, in, in with a Bible sense lexicon or other um, tools whereby you can narrow the field of those 213 uses and find uses that are in a comparable sense. That is, in a context that matches, it's a financial dealing or it's some other type of an application where it is talking about a self-rescue, such as in Ezekiel 14, verse 16 and 18, where we have another concept with a self-rescue, where it's being used reflexively or it's being used with respect to what we do to escape something. And this is the, uh, the prayer life here of what, uh, how Jerusalem could or could not be delivered. And the fact that Noah, Daniel, and Job could rescue themselves if they were praying for Jerusalem, but they couldn't save Jerusalem. And that's, uh, to, in, in my mind, there's a lot of reasons to preach Ezekiel 14, but there's a, a, some significant principles there of how a remnant can save a, uh, a pagan city like Austin <laughs> or a pagan country. Or what, what's, uh, you know, if 10 righteous could have saved Sodom, what hope does America have? And at what point have we reached the bottom floor where the pivot no longer has impact and where there is no more salt and light? If it becomes unsalty, will it ever be salty again? And I think the the answer is no. 
You know, have we reached a point where we can only save ourselves in our prayers and we are no longer a benefit to our nation? Well, that's the principle in Ezekiel 14. All right. And uh, anyway, I'm mean, doing more of these um, Bible sense lexicons, um, trying to learn more about how they operate. And, and, and I've also found, by the way, that some of them uh, are not as useful as others. And, and you've got to be cautious with them and, and do your own study. You may uh, find that you disagree with some of the senses. And uh, there's verses they omit and verses you would rather include and things of that nature. But this is a, an application here where, I'll make it larger, um, you can help yourself out. So here's the sense of to rescue, to free from harm or evil, and in some uh, cases from imprisonment. And it's a sense, okay? Not, not a specific word because it spans lots of words. So it spans not sal, and it spans not sal in those passages there. You see that? And so that, that's a way to really narrow down all the 213 uses of not sal, not sal if uh, this sense lexicon has already done much of that work for you to limit the not sal uh, passages to where it only has this particular sense. Likewise, sozo. Sozo does not always mean um, get eternal life and not go to hell when you die. You know, a lot of times sozo, to save or to rescue, is talking about the very same thing we're talking about here, being rescued from a problem or a, a military engagement or a debt or, or uh, some kind of a snare, all right? So 24 uses of sozo with this sense and those verses there. And then ruamai, ruamai, and you go, I never heard of ruamai before. Well, you should have, <laughs> okay? Ruamai is the lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, uh, imperative of, of the Lord's Prayer, right? There's a deliverance, deliver us from evil. It's not sozo, it's ruamai, okay? But there are, because of this sense of to rescue or to remove out of a, out of a problem, uh, that's the overall sense that has a variety of different Hebrew and Greek terms. Pellet is another Hebrew term with nine uses. Uh, yazav is a, another Hebrew application with a handful of uses. It's actually Aramaic with nine uses. Okay? So, in any event, there's a, uh, a useful utility that uh, I've started to make more and more use of out of the software to help find some parallel passages that relate to concepts, that relate to the sense of terms more so than the specific vocabulary involved. So, deliver yourself. It says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. And this is not the, the, you know, the, there's a positive character trait in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, and there's meekness, and there's humility, and there's gentleness. And uh, there's a lot of expressions that relate to humility that are very positive expressions. Uh, this one is more of an enforced humility application. This is not a pleasant humility. And, and you might think of this as humiliation more than humility. If, if that nuance helps in the English language between humility and humiliation, okay? And uh, I've been humbled many times in my life. We all have. We're not going to stand and give a testimony this morning. But we've also been very humiliated at various occasions in our life. And they're not always the same thing. Even though they may have similar outcomes or results, you can be humbled by being humiliated. And that's really what we're dealing with with Rafas. And so, uh, the idea of trampling an ox that's just trampling the silver in the mud or uh, a brook or a stream that's been ruined because the animal's trampled through it. It's not clean water anymore because it's been trampled. Um, there's, uh, there's applications there as well. So it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Go humiliate yourself. I prefer humiliate rather than humble. That way I can distinguish this verse out of, away from you know First Peter about um, you know, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you at the proper time. Or uh, God is uh, opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Those are very positive renderings of legitimate, genuine humility. This is a this is a secular application. It is a humiliation. It is embarrassing, but it's got to be done. It absolutely has to be done. And and you may suffer for it, but that's because a past decision has led to fewer options, and worse consequences down the road. So, 
Importune your neighbor. Subpoint three, Rahab. Importune your neighbor. The verb is Rahav, R-A-H-A-B. And this is connected not to the Jericho harlot, but to Satan. This is connected to the poetic name for the dragon, the poetic name uh, in um, uh, different uh, prophetic passages in, in Isaiah, in, I'm trying to think, Ezekiel, Job. It's very much a poetic name for the dragon. It's a poetic name for Satan. We dealt with it in our angelology series. It means arrogant. It means broad or wide. Somebody that is just uh, boisterous, arrogant. They act stormily. They just, um, you, uh, you've met these folks. They, 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 they barge in everywhere they go. They're immediately just in charge of everything and center of attention and demanding this and demanding that. And uh, the, the, the loudest, most uh, obnoxious, boisterous snob you ever met in your life. Okay? Well, maybe a snob's not the right word. But uh, just, it's just a real... In fact, we've got politicians that are kind of boisterous and in, in, in making a big splash now in the media in different ways. Okay? That's to act stormily, to act boisterously, to act arrogantly. And, and this is uh, to importune yourself is where you're just marching in and you're giving them the what for, right? You're walking in there or the whatnot, okay? And you're just walking in saying, we're done. Our business arrangement is over. You must release me. I'm cashing out. And, and even uh, to the point where if you have to, you're fronting the money up front to say, there it is. There it is. I'm no longer your surety. I'm no longer your guarantee. And whatever you have to do to make that happen, make that happen. Other uh, illustrations of Rahab, there's only four uses, and, it's, and all four uses, I think, couldn't be more different from one another than, than you would ask for, <laughs> okay? Um, but there you have it, all right? We can grab these real quickly, it won't take long. Psalm 138, because I think the best illustration of this is not even a Hebrew text, it goes into the New Testament, and we have the uh, persistent widow in that parable of Luke 18. But um, anyway, as a concept, this is what we're looking at. Psalm 138 and verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold. You made me boisterous. You made me confident. You made me, uh, you know, you filled me with braggadocio, you might think of it. You made me bold with strength in my soul. Well, that's a positive result. David was pleased with his prayer life there. And uh, God provides this, and there you go. So that's, obviously, like I say, these are all different. Proverbs 6.3 is our passage today where you're going to be bold and uh, importune your neighbor. Just storm him. Absolutely storm him. Song of Solomon 6.5. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Chapter 6 and verse 5. Mm. Uh, Turn your eyes away from me, for they have Rahav confused me. They have stormed me. (laughs) They have bamboozled me. They've left me bewildered. So turn your eyes away from me, for they have confused me. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Gilead. You know, this. you talk about things that uh, our culture can't accept. <laughs> you know, arranged marriages is one thing, but um, there, there are uh, expressions of tenderness that no longer mean anything to us today. If I tell Sharon her hair is like a flock of goats, that's not complimentary. Not, uh, not in modern English usage anyway, okay? Her eyes do confuse me, though. That's, that's still valid. There's, uh, you know, Isaiah 3 and verse 5, the fourth and final use. Like I say, in so many ways, the vocabulary is tough because the expression is used idiomatically, and it's used uh, really determined by its context and application that leaves us really... Uh, without a lexical 
um, a lot of lexical help with just the terminology. Isaiah 3, 5. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will, and here's our verb, Rahav, the youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. Now this one may actually come the closest to our verse today in Proverbs 6. This one may actually come the closest to what you're expected to do to your neighbor uh, when you see the just the disrespectful attitude here of the youth to the elder, to the inferior, to the honorable. Uh, I mean, you just almost see a defiance. You almost see a, a stomping of the foot and, a, and an anger and a hostility, right? Uh, the, the younger generation that just has no no frame of reference and any kind of respect for the uh, for the elder, and and that's that's the closest I think of all these other terms. Certainly not batting the eye of Song of Solomon, but the closest of all these usages I think that gives us the idea of what we're being commanded to do in Proverbs chapter 6. We should storm the neighbor. Get out from the debt now. Sever the uh, the unhealthy, inappropriate financial obligation that's linking those two houses together. Because it, it may be, it may, if the longer you leave the tie in place, it may actually lead to worse ties down the road. Forget this one surety and this one uh, obligation. What if this one then feeds another one and it feeds another one? What if you're tied to this one and then he's got these other ties over here that you, you didn't know anything about? But you're tied. These other guys are tied. Now you may have enemies coming from, from left field. You didn't even know where they were coming from. All right. And I tell you, if you don't, recognize how serious tribal grudges are <laughs> just tour the middle east sometime tour i mean look at the the, the arab on arab violence the muslim violence as much of it's tribal okay grudges that go back decades or centuries that oh we hate that clan for no other reason than something that happened decades or centuries prior all right, Luke 18. I think the best illustration of this imperative comes from the persistent widow and uh, the parable Jesus taught in Luke chapter 18. He taught it as a positive feature. He taught it as a valid and acceptable and desirable uh, pattern for prayer. And this is the uh, Holy Spirit's commentary when he says, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So this, the purpose of this parable is to communicate the uh, nature of prayer without ceasing, the nature of the, the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man that can avail much. And so we ought to at all times pray and don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't, don't say, well, prayer doesn't work. He hasn't answered me yet. No, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it until the answer comes. And so uh, he says, in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. Okay? And we know it's a parable right off the bat. Well, verse 1 tells us it's a parable, but then the features of a parable show up. It's uh, not a specific name that's given, not a specific place. It's just, you know, there was a city, there was a judge, and here we go. Uh, who did not fear God and who did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And it doesn't matter what the issue is. We don't know what it is, okay? But it's a legal matter, and and she needs protection. And uh, so she keeps coming to him, keeps coming to him. And for a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, and this is the point, okay? He, uh, he's unwilling because what's in it for him, right? An unrighteous judge is looking for his angle. What's his cut? What's his fee? You know, and if, uh, if the widow can, can grease the skids, then she can pay him off and he'd be happy to rule on her behalf. But it may be that the other side of this lawsuit is going to pay better. Okay, well, the judge is going to wait and see. So for a while, he was unwilling He's still in a suspended decision, okay? And that's the key. It's wrong once you get your answer to then go back and pester the Lord and, and ask him if he, could, if he wouldn't mind changing his mind, <laughs> okay? That's what Balaam did. When the Lord answered Balaam's prayer to say, no, you can't curse, you can't curse Israel, tell, ba- tell Balak no and, uh, and return the fees, uh, Balaam 
I said, well, let me go back and ask again. Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe I can get a different answer this time. Okay? If you've got your answer going back, that's not importune prayer. That's defiance. And you'll come under discipline for that. But in this illustration, notice there's still time that's passing by. It says, for a while. It says he was unwilling, meaning the judgment has not yet been given in the affirmative. But then afterward, as time has gone by, he said to himself, all right, because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And he just finally, finally gives her what she's asking for to make her go away. All right? Now, that's a, that's a terrible judicial system. <laughs> and we would hate it if, uh, if our judicial system was like that. Sometimes I think it is. But it's used to illustrate that's the kind of prayer, we, prayer life we should have with God. Keep bugging him and 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 bugging him like a three-year-old in the back seat. Okay? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Okay? And man, that's, that's 2,800 miles to Seattle. That's a long drive. But see, that's how the persistent prayer ought to be. The hacking cough, the, in, the, the prayer without ceasing. And, uh, and just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. All right. So the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect? Because we're not praying to an unrighteous judge. We're praying to a judge of absolute fairness, of absolute righteousness, and the judge who gave his son that we would have eternal life. Do you think he's going to rule favorably on our behalf? Or is he going to wait to see if our adversary can make a better deal? No, our God's not crooked. Will he not bring about justice for his elect? Of course he will. Who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? How long is it going to be? I believe he delays long enough to teach us what we need to learn in the process. And if he gives it to us too quickly, we don't learn what we need to learn in terms of the endurance and the patience and the the blessings we learn through the persistent prayer. I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly in his standard of quickly, right? Behold, I come quickly. That was 2,000 years ago. So he will bring about justice for them quickly. (laughs) All right? Don't think that uh, you have to have the immediate uh, gratification to your prayer life. Quickly is on his timetable. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You realize the answer to your prayers may be at the second habit of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to wait till then? All right, so that's the point. Importune your neighbor. And that's how serious it's got to be. Which gets us now to verses 6 through 11. David's second financial admonition is a warning against laziness. All right, a warning against laziness. You know, these are the kind of lessons that your teenager needs before he leaves home. These are the kind of lessons, if you don't, under, if you don't have a biblical perspective to uh, life, then are you really ready to leave father and mother and cleave to one another and, and step forth in your own generation? You're going to end up uh, <laughs> falling for the first dumb thing that comes along. Okay, And you should have known better. I knew better. That's the worst part. I knew better. I was trained better. But we got so excited, the first door-to-door salesman that came to our door, we'd been, we'd been married like two weeks, I think. First door-to-door salesman that came to our door. And we bought a set of encyclopedias. And we thought, wow, we're going to have kids. They need, to, they need encyclopedias. We're going to homeschool. Had no idea that within 15 years that the internet was going to take over and Wikipedia and everything else. And we still have the encyclopedias, though. All right. So, yeah, verses 1 through 5, uh, don't, uh, don't make dumb choices and get tied down with some scheme of your neighbors. Uh, verses 6 through 11, work hard. Don't be a slug. Plan ahead. So go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Why are those ants always busy? Why are they always going and finding food and they're bringing them back home and they're stashing them away? You know, why, why do I never see the, the ant sitting on the couch watching football? 
They're, they're just, they're, they're working. They're out there, they're preparing. They're going somewhere, coming back from somewhere with something. All right. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? And this is the thing, you know, throw it back at them and say, all right, I get that. You need a rest, okay? But, you know, do you really need a, a two-day work week and a five-day weekend? Okay, what are you, what are you doing, you know? Got to, you work for two weeks and take 52-week vacation? What do you do? 50-week vacation. Um, or do you work 50 and take a two-week vacation? What do you do? What's the pattern? So how long will you lie down? When will you rise from your sleep? All right. You know, are you getting up at the crack of noon? What are you doing? Oh, and then here's what he says. And this is, this is like a sing song. This is like a taunting music. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Just a little more, okay? This is the original snooze alarm, by the way. Long before alarm clocks. This is, this is the five-minute snooze. Just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. We have uh, vagabonds and ruffians, okay? And uh, we're going to have some fun with that verse because it's no longer politically correct to refer to vagabonds as vagabonds. We're no longer, you know, to reference a, a hobo or a bum or a vagrant or a vagabond or... or uh, Imagine even a sluggard uh, flies in the face of our, our modern political correctness, okay? Come on, it's not their fault. Society owes them something. And please, I'm, my, I'm allowing my, my, my privilege to show, all right? Well, the Bible calls them vagabonds, and uh, I, I want to keep my vocabulary biblical. All right. So point two, David's second financial admonition is a warning against laziness. Sub-point A, sluggards should learn from ants. Sluggards should learn from ants. Well, you're not learning from Bible class. (laughs) You're not learning from your parents. You're not learning from, you know, other sources of divine viewpoint wisdom. At least, you know, can nature teach you anything? (laughs) <laughs> All right. Um, if you won't listen to what the Bible says, uh, you know, look to look to creation. If nothing else, and in, it's interesting. Not only does Proverbs do this, Paul does this sometimes. And he talks about long hair, and he says, "Look to," you know, there's there's other things. We can look to the natural realm and say, you know, can't you learn anything from just reality, <laughs> how the world works? I think uh, if if you can't even learn from reality, then it shows where the hardness of heart has crept in. I think it shows where the philosophies have taken our culture. Because there is an awful lot being passed as good and normal and natural that's not good and normal and natural. And even creation won't wake them up. Because they've deluded themselves into thinking that, oh well, uh, this, this, this happens in creation in, in, in too. There's, there's animals that do this. Okay, as if that justifies whatever else you want to do. If an animal does it, it's okay. All right. <laughs> you know what the praying mantis does? <laughs> We're going to use that for marital advice? What are we going to do? All right. Now, there are places where you can go to natural revelation, and you can look at the ant. You can look at the badger. You can look at the... There's other animals, and, and we can learn. Okay, and it's an illustration. It's an illustration of what the truth is, is saying. Okay, we don't uh, copy the animals because we don't want to be animal-like. We we use the animals as the illustration because, because we're learning from the Word of God. We're learning from Scripture. So sluggards should learn from ants. And uh, interesting approach there. Okay, uh, ant vocabulary is kind of boring, but uh, sluggish vocabulary is pretty interesting. The sluggard is atsel, A-T-S-E-L. You want to make sure you put a, a uh, apostrophe in front of that first A, and it's a hard apostrophe. It's not the aleph, it's the ayin. All right? So start with, with the uh, kind of the cough, choke, swallow 
sound that the ayin represents, atzeo, atzeo. Some uh, just give up and call it a G. I don't like to call it a G because there's another Hebrew letter that we transliterate with a G. But Atzel, number 6102, has 14 uses. All 14 of them are in Proverbs. Okay, Proverbs is the book to turn to if you want to uh, read God's rebukes against the sluggard. 14 uses, all of them in Proverbs. There is a substantive, um, I mean, there is a verb, the root verb behind Atzel is actually found in Judges 18.9. The only place that uh, the verb lotzal takes place in is Judges 18.9. And uh, kind of it's useful to see that and then uh, look at these 14 adjectives. And basically the adjective is used substantively. So the adjective becomes a noun when it's used that way. So it's not just lazy, it's the lazy person, the lazy man, the lazy kid the lazy one, okay? You take the adjective lazy and make it a substantive use. But Judges 18 and verse 9, as far as uh, remaining, Joshua 18, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there and the land was subdued before them. There remained, however, among the sons of Israel, seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? You know, when are you going to get around to it? (laughs) You know, there's still seven um, of tribes that were being slugs. Provide for yourselves three men from each tribe that I may send them, and that they may arise and walk through the land and write a description of it according to their inheritance, so that they shall return to me. All right, you gotta you gotta appoint the you gotta do the appraisal, you gotta do the property inspection, you gotta you gotta survey the the uh, the tribal allotment so that you can then not only identify your tribes but then break it down into your clans, and then the clans have to take theirs and break it down into their families. All the different uh, subdivisions here. Uh, anyway, they shall divide it into seven portions and all these other things. Uh, so verse eight, the men arose and went and Joshua commanded those who went to describe the land. There's a, a process to this saying, go and walk through the land and describe it and return to me and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. And so they've got to survey these, these seven territories. And then uh, when the descriptions are in place, then they're going to cast the lots and say, all right, you get this one, you get this one, you get this one. Actually, the Lord will sovereignly con- uh, control those lots. All right, so the men went and passed by. And there it is. Why does it say 18.9? I think I should say 18.3. I'm reading... Oh, thank you. I'm reading the wrong book. I'm reading Joshua. Striking how Joshua 18 has the same... The same concept, yeah. Judges 18 in verse 9. All right, there we go. Do not delay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Judges 18.9. They said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land. Behold, it is very good. Will you sit still? Do not delay to go to enter to possess the land. So will you sit still? Will you be sluggish? Do not delay. Do not be a slug. I think the do not delay is the, is the verb. Do not delay to go to enter to possess the land. All right. You know, fundamentally... Being a slug is disobedience, right? I mean, if you're just putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, what are you doing? You really have no intention to ever do it. It's just a, it's a way to be disobedient to say, eh, I haven't gotten it yet. I'm not ready yet. Just a little more sleep, a little more slumber. It's a, it's a dodge. All right. The uses of the, of the noun, atzel, this is our first in Proverbs chapter 6, is introduced here in verse 6, and again in verse 9, how long will you lie down, atzel, O sluggard? When will you arise from sleep? How long is long enough? Okay, I know you need your beauty rest, but come on. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 10 and verse 26. 
Proverbs 10, 26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. That's no good. So is the lazy one to those who send him. <laughs> okay? You know, come on. You sent somebody on a mission, on, a, on an assignment? They're taking forever? How long does this take? That's like vinegar to the teeth or smoke to the eyes. It's not a pleasant thing. Highly irritating. Uh, Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Contrast between sluggard and diligent. Both have soul cravings. One is satisfied, the other is not. Why do you think that is? So many of these just preach themselves. They're all self-explanatory. Proverbs fifteen nineteen. The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. You understand that laziness, laziness becomes a lifestyle. It's a way or a path. Likewise, the upright is a highway. But the way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns. It's a path, it's a lifestyle. You don't get anywhere with it, but there it is. That's uh, 1519. 19.24. Nineteen twenty-four. The sluggard. Oh, I laugh every time I read this. This is probably the laziest guy in the whole Bible. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> I mean, how lazy can you get? You know, at some point. I mean, I understand. You get these deadbeats, and they're not even. You know, the Bible says if a man will not work, neither let him eat. And and the the assistance programs in the Old Testament required work. If the poor were going to eat, they had to go glean the, the gleanings of the field like Ruth was doing in the book of Ruth. There's provision for it. There is no um, you know, government assistance program in the Bible that just has you sitting at home watching uh, Jerry Springer and, and having food brought to you. But the, the whole concept where you're just that lazy, not only are you not willing to work, you can't even get your hand out of your dish. You know... We want, a, we want a government bureau to walk in and put food in my mouth. Anyway, <laughs> makes me laugh. That's 1924. Um, chapter 20 and verse 4, The slugger does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. He should have learned from the ant. Okay, He should have learned from the ant. There's the time to plow, there's the time to uh, sow, there's the time to harvest. And if you're, uh, if you're late, uh, guess what? Nature doesn't wait. The seasons are coming, and uh, that's what happens. Seasons change. That's what they do. Twenty-one twenty-five. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. Yep. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. I, I, I don't know. I think hunger is a great motivator. But if you if your sluggard attitude even can overcome hunger, then I don't know how to help. There's what else is there? Twenty two thirteen. The sluggard says there's a lion outside. No, there isn't. But it's a good excuse, I believe it. <laughs> there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. Oh, well, there's a lion outside, and you better stay indoors. Yep. I guess, yeah. Can't go to work today. That's kind of fun. All the lame excuses people leave, uh, you know, give their bosses for why they can't go to work. So that's 22.13. 24.30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And guess what? So, you know, there's a good parallel because we've had the knucklehead already. We have the fool from earlier chapters. Chapter 6 is our first introduction to the sluggard. Here's the sluggard and the fool in the same verse. Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. It's just in horrible repair. 
you know, how productive is this field? How productive is this vineyard? Not at all. Because he's so lazy, it's just negligent. All right. And there it is again. Verse 33. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber you want, like an armed man. So we've got vagabonds and ruffians and thugs. Finally, um, chapter 26 has four uses. Chapter 26, you might think of this as the, uh, the critical passage. Verse 13, 14, 15, and 16. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a lion in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. <laughs> you know, just with a squeaky creak, there's the door opening, and there's the sluggard rolling over. Okay, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. I'm just so tired of eating, you know. I mean, and then you got to chew, and then you got to swallow, and then, I mean, come on. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Isn't that something? And, and, and you ask them, you ask them to explain themselves, and, and they have all the answers in the world, all the reasons why, all the re- it's not their fault, it's everybody else's fault, here's this reason, here's that reason. And you can line up the seven wisest men in town, and they know better than all those guys. You can't talk a lick of sense into these folks. Yeah. <laughs> what am I talking about? That's the sluggard. Okay, the ant, kind of boring. We'll have to wrap up with this. I don't know if John Niemela, I expect John Niemela has been in the ministry for a long, long time. He's probably encountered the vocabulary already. I don't need to email him and say, by the way, do you know your name in Hebrew means ant? Namala. Namala. N-E-M-A-L-A-H. Namala. And what's really bizarre, and it's only two uses in the whole Bible, and we've seen one of them here, and the other one's in Proverbs chapter 30, and, and there's not a lot of doctrine you know, impact on the ant, but, but we'll see the two uses. There's a good article on it. I think it's useful on the harvester ants. But the, uh, maybe the most remarkable thing I can say about Namala is it's got the feminine singular and the masculine plural. <laughs> okay? A handful of terms do that. You got the law, the feminine ending. Namala is a feminine noun. I don't know. Don't ask me why ants are feminine. Maybe because they're not uncles. Sorry, ants are feminine, but the plural, the plural of ant, is not nimaloth. It's nimalim. I don't know why it takes the em ending. The em is the is the masculine plural ending. So someday maybe John Nimala will explain that to me. Nimalim. Um, in Proverbs 6, it's the single, look to the ant, and she's called a she. In Proverbs 30, it's plural, look to the ants. In uh, 3025, the ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The Shephanim are not a mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard, you may grasp with the hands, yet it is in king's palaces. And so there in Proverbs chapter 30, we've got um, ants, shephanim, locusts, and lizards. And uh, interestingly enough, the Lockman Foundation finally admitted, we don't know what shephanim are. (laughs) So we're not going to translate it. We can call it rock badgers, or we can call it uh, conies, or we can call it rabbits, or we can guess, or we can just admit it's all a guess, and we'll just call them shephanim. We'll translate the Hebrew term and, uh, and let it go. Okay, well, we'll deal with that in chapter 30. The Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia has a good article on harvester ants, but I'm out of time, so next week we'll pick up on this. We'll read the article on harvester ants. I liked it, and uh, I was edified by it, so I just don't have time today. It's already 10.59. If you want a copy of that, let me know. I can shoot it to you in an email. Otherwise, I'll just read it to you next week. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Thank you, Father, for the uh, Proverbs that address so much of our practical life. 
Father. It's uh, dealing with our sex life, dealing with our finances, dealing with uh, just every aspect of, of personal life. And we can line up in uh, Scripture in ways that please you, or we can defy your, uh, your will and face the consequences. And Father, uh, I ask that we would be humbled before you, the truth of your word, that uh, we would uh, take every aspect of our personal life, from our sex life to our finances to everything, Father, that uh, it might all be for, the, for your good pleasure, for the glory of your Son, Father, I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.